if the purpose of, it, of a private school is to have be freed from some of the restrictions and conventions of the public system, fine. But then the question is, well, what are you giving back to be able to make better experiences for all students across the board? And for me, so often, that was just not the case at the country clubs that are masquerading as schools. Hey there, and welcome back to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that shares stories of positive impact in a world that right now can leave us all feeling a little helpless. Each episode, I speak with incredibly inspiring guests about the positive impact they're making, learning how they discovered their passion, and uncover what they've done to turn vision into action. I also aim to tease out what we can all do to lead more impactful lives, so be sure to stick around. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital, solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. If you're returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You inspire us to keep sharing these impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome guest list we have lined up for you. And a huge thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And on the show today, how educator and designer Joshua Don teamed up with Elon Musk to change how students learn. And now, the synthesis is scaling this approach to the masses. Josh, such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. Of course, delighted to be here. And uh, for people who haven't gone down the Joshua Don YouTube hole just yet, I'm going to share a few of your kind of updates and accomplishments just to provide some context for the conversation. So you're an educator by trade and you've specialized in gifted students. You previously taught uh, with Teach for America. You taught Elon Musk's kids and from there you and Elon co-founded Ad Astra, which means uh, to the stars. You're the executive director of Astronova Schools and co-founder and creative director of Synthesis. Am I missing anything here? I think that's it. Yeah, I'm sure there's quite a bit more. I'm sure you're also a wonderful human, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, you know, father of two, I guess is a, yeah, just had our second baby. So that's probably up there in terms of uh, most important pieces. Yeah, for sure. Congratulations. Yeah. So I've heard you and Musk reference this, uh, this assembly line of education. And I'd love to just start off by understanding what you mean by that and what the problem with that is. I think that the transcript that you receive upon completion of high school, whether you go to like the fanciest boarding school in the United States or whether you go to your you know, local public school looks remarkably the same. So, you know, maybe there's some variance in terms of taking an honors course or an AP course, or maybe you have an IB curriculum or something else, but largely your experiences are predetermined from the moment you enroll in a school system and they are unlikely to change. Like I imagine in 10 years, you will still see world history, American history, pre-algebra, pre-calculus, you know, the same set of courses. And I think both Elon and I shared the idea that you could have more meaningful experiences over the course of these years in this place that we call school. And that when you look back on the time that you spent, which is of course a lot of time, right? So you're from whatever it's age five or six until the age of 18, and it's not even talking about university, that if you really think about the impact that moments in a classroom or in a school had, when you like from, from a distance, from, from, the, from the future self, that you would have a better school uh, if you could like look back on those formative moments that you had, those like really meaningful experiences, those places where you felt like real power to do something meaningful, that you could draw from those experiences as you kind of go throughout life. And it seemed to me that when I think back on like my middle school and high school experience, that there were very few of those moments. But the moments that I did have were like incredibly important and instrumental to the things that I have, have done since. Like I remember, you know, when I was in eighth grade, there was a class um, where we were asked, like, what's the best way to distribute really uh, scarce tickets? Like there's some, again, a fictional exercise really like where, where would you, like, how could these tickets be distributed in a way that would be equitable? You know, should we drop them from a helicopter? Should we have people line up? Should we auction them off? You know, but just even sifting through those seemingly equivalent answers, like that experience has stayed with me to the point that when I designed Conundrums, which is this partnership with Class Dojo, where we're like writing these 
one minute videos to engage students in like seemingly equivalent choices that my experience as an eighth grader sort of resonates now like all these years later. And it felt to me like if we could design a school where you have these powerful moments throughout your experience that you can draw on as you continue to grow and to learn more that maybe that's like the true measure of a, of a school's efficacy. And maybe really like that should be the, the project of school is to provide you with meaningful moments and experiences that you can reflect on and help you make sense of yourself in the world. So Elon and I were in agreement on that. And the idea was like, well, how could we, you know, start a school uh, with this mindset? It's a lot of sense. And so, I mean, you've been on quite the journey since you and Elon, you know, started this in, in or dreamt up at Astra back in 2014. Can you just tell me about the rationale behind starting the school with Elon? Tell me just a little, I, I, I mean, I understand this assembly line is the rationale, but tell me about the circumstances that took place leading up to it. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I was just the teacher of, of one of his kids. I knew who Elon Musk was because I'd seen him on the Daily Show or something like that. And, uh, you know, at the time, Elon probably had like 500,000 or so Twitter followers. Now he has over 50 million. So Elon Musk was definitely not capital E, capital M, Elon Musk that he is today, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world and everything else. But of course, he was still you know, widely known and was doing some fascinating things with Tesla and SpaceX. And, you know, I had a parent-teacher conference and really just talked about a few different things. I was working on a kind of a simulation where I needed to know if there were physical requirements for astronauts to go to space. Like, could anyone go to space? Like anyone kind of off the street or did you need to have, you know, be like in top physique or something like that? And so we kind of talked about that and talked about Tesla. There's some stuff going on with the company and, um, you know, he invite, I got an email. So we were kind of going back and forth. I, I wanted to put together a, uh, like a Mobius strip. And he's like, I'm happy to like pay for it if you like can put it together. So we kind of went back and forth in some emails. And then his assistant reached out and asked if I could come to SpaceX on kind of a random Thursday in November. And that ended up being the meeting that started at Astra, which really was, you know, how can we, you know, create like a better school? And it wasn't so much like, let's change education. Let's revolutionize the way schools are done. It was really, you know, probably as, as it always and as it always, but certainly as it sometimes starts in these situations with people like Elon, it starts with the personal challenge that you have where your kids are not engaged in school and you want to know if there's a better solution. You believe in your capacity to make better solutions out of thin air, essentially. And this was just one of those things. And I was not the person probably in a lot of ways that anyone else in the world would have picked to do this. You know, Elon could have hired, you know, the head of, I don't know, any educational organization or any school or could have, you know, done a search of the top educators in the world, a list that I, of course, not would not have been on. I was really in the right place at the right time. And I've spent the last seven years at some level trying to justify that incredible fortune that I've been given and trying to atone at some level, I think, for that remarkable, <laughs> that remarkable chance to create a school with Elon. And, you know, to set the scene, I mean, imagine like sitting not across the desk from Elon at SpaceX. And he's asking you if you want to start a school and you're like, well, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, the alternative is like, I continue to teach fourth grade at like this, you know, this school for highly gifted kids. And I said, look, of course, you know, I can't, yeah, of course I want to do this. Like, well, you know, think about it, get back to me. And I, I, I wrote him an email like four in the morning or something like that. Like I'm totally in, we should go visit all these schools. Here's how we should think about it. Here's the size, here's the scope, here's how it should be designed. And then I didn't hear back, you know, from November 15th until probably like January 15th. So two months went by all the holidays, um, or, you know, Thanksgiving and kind of like, you know, Christmas and all of that. And uh, I, I really truly believe that I had, if not hallucinated the entire experience, had messed up so irretrievably that Elon was just too <laughs> polite to let me know that there was, of course, like no way that he was going to hire his child's fourth grade teacher to run a school. And then also like all the expectations in terms of my own, my, my wife was, you know, I'm trying to explain it to her and, you know, my parents also, and they're wondering how I'm going to go from teacher to principal or school designer or whatever that may be. Um, and even years later, even though, of course, like I co-founded Ad Astra and had designed it and created it as the principal of the school, there's still people in my family that think that my claim to fame, I guess, is that I, I taught Elon's kids. And it was really important to me to... I guess for my own sake to just to be more than that like yes like of course like teaching the children of the, the rich and famous is 
I don't know, I guess that that's a compliment in some way, but it was really important that we create a real school. And it was challenging that first year to convince ourselves that it was a real school because there are nine kids and five of them are Elons. So it was a glorified homeschool situation to start. But then, you know, you just start to piece it together. You add some really talented colleagues and you, uh, you know, you convert the garage at the time into a, chem a chemistry lab and start to build, you know, a school culture. And, uh, and from the very beginning, uh, I, and I continue to be so to this day, to try to be maniacal about like, what is a true product of our ingenuity? Like, what is a real insight? And then how can we humbly share those insights as much as possible versus what is a product of, of resources? You know, it's amazing to be able to attract, you know, Dr. Rose is one of my amazing colleagues. She's her PhD from Caltech. We would all have died to have a chemistry teacher like Dr. Rose. And that's an amazing facet of Astronova School and, and previously at Astra. But you can't scale Dr. Rose, really. Like, I can't, you know, that's not something that's like, that's not like a fair advantage that a school like ours has. It's just a product of resource. So I've always sort of sought something that is a product of like real, real thinking and something that can be shared that is not something that requires high levels of technology or needs, you know, remarkable people like Dr. Rose um, to be able to, to provide. So that's been my focus in the very beginning is finding a way that this small school can in some moral way, like justify existing. Like I've always wondering, is the world better because Ad Astra exists or Astronova exists? Or is that even too arrogant of a question? Like, of course it doesn't matter. It's too small. Like, the scope is minuscule. But I've also, I've always wondered like, what if that scope would actually expand? And then if the ideas are good enough, then maybe it could have an impact. And, and if I understand correctly, that scope is expanding through synthesis. Yeah, it's expanded in two major ways. The first is conundrums, you know, the partnership I mentioned with Class Dojo. Uh, you know, our videos, the conundrums videos that I write with students at Astronova have you know, had over a million views in the first few weeks of release. And the idea is kind of posing these open-ended questions uh, to students and having them like disagree productively with their classmates and hopefully with their teacher as well. Uh, just because I felt like in my early teaching career, because of the sense of urgency around getting students to grade level or getting them to pass you know, standardized tests that we've sacrificed a lot in that pursuit. Now it's not that you know, students didn't need high levels of literacy skills or like better number sense and all those things, but so much of the focus was on preparing them for these tests that there really wasn't a moment for a student who was you know, behind or behind in like the traditional sense, like behind in math or behind in, in English language arts to express an opinion or to be central to a conversation that was being had because all the conversations tended to be around adding fractions or you know, finding the main idea in this passage. So I've always been intrigued by the idea that any person, that if you give someone a welcoming question that has embedded complexity, that it gives them a, an ability to weigh in and to be engaged in the conversation that otherwise they will not be. And I just felt like, unfortunately, that all these kids, even in fifth grade, felt like school, they couldn't engage in the realm of school because they were held back from any number of reasons. And it just felt deeply unfair that these really brilliant kids were not able to have a voice in school because school was so geared towards like very specific pieces that needed to be in place. Otherwise, you know, school funding would be less for that next year. Um, so conundrums is that first step. Those are available uh, through our YouTube channel, but also through um, Class Dojo called conundrums and then the second one is, is synthesis which is its own company which is scaling the class that i did teach and have consistently taught at astra astronova is this class called synthesis which was really a catch-all for everything that i did but really in the later years became game design so designing welcoming yet complex experiences where students both compete and collaborate to make some tough choices so whether that's art auctions or they're trying to manage like a fishery or they're um you know delving into like, I don't, I don't know, like, um, really, like, I don't know, really any type of challenge, really, like, it doesn't really matter the context, I'm pretty agnostic in terms of the content, but just finding the, these, like, tough moments, and then driving, like, deep reflection after them, so you kind of build that intense experience, you throw yourself in, and then you have the time afterwards to kind of weigh in on, on how it all went, and what it all means, so those are the two ways that I've been trying to scale uh, the work that I've done at Astra, I continue to do at Astronova, and synthesis right now, you know, has over, I think, a thousand students in just a few months, and it's growing pretty rapidly, with the idea being that we will find a way to scale it to the world and, and hopefully make it free, honestly, um, because 
that that seems to be work that that's worth doing. And when you think about synthesis, I mean, based on what I understand and based on you know conversations that I've heard you and, and co-founders have, the I think the best analogy that I've heard, and I'd love to hear if, if you agree with it, but it's comparing some of those games to the games that are played in Ender's Game. And the idea that they continuously get more difficult and you continuously ensure that the students are exposed to new concepts and you are just testing them at the forefront of their ability. Uh, and, and in doing so, you are ensuring that you are teaching students just very rapidly in a very exciting gamified way. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. And Ender's Game has its own problems in terms of uh, kind of what the games are in service to. But I think that that's, that that's right. I, you know, the elegance of a game like Chess or a game like Go, to try to replicate in some ways the elegance of those games and the approachability of those games uh, through intentional design that actually allows students to be designers of, of the experiences themselves as they get deeper into it, right? So every game that we build. So right now I'm working on a game called Fish, which is you're managing, managing fisheries. So there's different fish, there's different, uh, there's different quotas in terms of how many can be caught. You have different ship types that you're able to select and uh, you can design the maps in, in different ways. You can incentivize uh, catching one fish over another. You have to return all the fish to different cities. But the thing that I think is best, first of all, is like the openness. So design the game for openness such that you can continue to ratchet up the complexity but also that you allow that space for students to design their own maps and to think through how, how you could really, you know, <laughs> create those uh, useful conflicts um, as it relates to the game, but ultimately to create a simulation of a fishery where we are trying to incentivize the right choices rather than those that are going to lead to economic or uh, systemic ruin. So I think of it in this way, like, so rather than avoiding competition, like factor competition and profited all these things in, but then building that space to reflect on where teams were motivated. And it's really interesting as it relates to profit, because almost regardless of what the metrics of success are in a game, teams will disproportionately value profit. Even if profit is worth 20% of your score, something else is worth 60%. You will find something else is worth, you know, like you will find that profit is going to be overvalued. And even just having a conversation around that, like why you might think that way or like why you might think that that's, and I think it's just like hugely important. So um, I just think that the promise of synthesis is just the novelty, like the novelty of like a new game, a new experience that's been built on what we've learned from previous games and the opportunity to really involve students as collaborators, as part of the process of those who are designing the maps and being engaged in that process. Um, and then also as a company to like learn more about how we collaborate. Like what are the ingredients to success, right? We know that, you know, Google did that big study like a few years back and it was basically like the norms that are set in a group is really important and the, um, the ability that everyone can join in. So, you know, if after years of studying teams at Google, they realized that basically be kind and join in were the two, the two main things. I just wonder with students that are younger, like how we can build conditions so that they can feel confident as collaborators and be just more aware of where you know, they're dominating the discussion and not allowing voice for others or where they're happily being told what to do but are not really choosing the roles in a team that they wanna play. And I feel like there's no better way to do this than giving you an experience that you're engaged in and then having the time and space to reflect on the connections you can make between that experience and yourself and the experience in the world and the experience, um, you know, just, just in general, like the experiences that you're having. So. Anyway, that's, that's generally speaking, like how I think about synthesis is like, what's the most compelling experience that I can design that will create that space that we can help you reflect and make sense of the world. And uh, I wish that I had the opportunity to do that at the age of eight or seven or 12 or whatever that way may be. And whether or not synthesis happens through the company of synthesis or whether synthesis is just the name that I'm giving to this thing that needs to happen in schools. Uh, in my mind, like the success is like the distribution of these types of experiences as an essential part of any kid's education anywhere. Because regardless of what you do, the ability to collaborate and to solve problems and to feel like you have a voice in a team, like those things are indispensably important now and into the future. And they always have been because they're going to give you the greatest chance of success and happiness. So it seems, I mean, it seems insane in some ways that we can't point to experiences that students are having in school 
that are begetting those types of experiences very often. Because we know that teamwork as it relates generally to classrooms is, you know, someone does the work and everyone else kind of stands around or, you know, it's just never, it's never synchronous. It's, or it's never, it's never, uh, it's never symmetrical. So trying to find more symmetrical experiences and then, uh, and then providing them at scale. So I've got, a, I've got a few thoughts for you on this. Sure. When you think about um, the outcomes that the, that the learners are achieving through these games, are you actually, are you giving them insights and feedback to show them, hey, so-and-so, you were dominating this conversation? Like, is this, is this something that they can become aware of through playing one of these games? Yeah. And this is, I think that Silicon Valley largely has used technology, not for like, not for the benefit of students necessarily. I mean, obviously things that are enabled like Zoom and whatever, and without the, you know, in the pandemic, what we've done without Zoom. But one of the things that's really fantastic about the approach of synthesis is that all the sessions are, are recorded and they're recorded so that we can pull these moments that like we can like tag with the facilitator or TA in a session can tag a moment not to then just share with your parents, like, look at this great moment, or like, look at this moment where your child told this other kid to shut up or something horrible, right? It's but to tag a moment to share with students so that they can better make sense of, of like sort of the story through synthesis and kind of connect it to the larger world. So you can have these moments where, you know, you, you would invite a voice in that hasn't been heard on your team. And we have that captured in audio. And then so eventually where we'll be is like that clip, you can give it magnitude and you can kind of place it as you're making sense of kind of your own constellation of experiences. So that to me is just really exciting. Like it leverages the power of technology in a way where you can be like deeply reflective and look in the mirror sometimes when it's hard, hard to do it. Like this podcast, I, I probably will never listen to because I'm mortified at hearing myself talk, but I think, it, but it would be better for me if I would listen to it because it's better that like next time that I will be more eloquent or more thoughtful or, you know, less, less, self aware I don't know, whatever it is that would make a better interview next time, it would be, it would benefit me to, to watch it, right? And it just as it will benefit students to watch the good, the bad, and the ugly of these moments that they're experiencing in synthesis, where they are joining in to the conversation, they're, you know, motivated to do well because they, they, they're engaged in the process and they want to win. And it brings out sometimes some not beautiful things, but what better time than childhood and early adolescence and adolescence to be able to reflect on those moments and not to be scolded for that or to be shared with your parents and that creates this kind of separate relationship where we cut you out as a kid, but we share them with you and we just are there to support you and helping make sense of what these all mean and how you can you know, own your progress. Uh, like to say something like we want to create really capable problem solvers and collaborators and to actually mean it and to go through the difficult work that it would take to go from kind of the standard, you go through school, you go through these educational experiences you hope that a compilation of music and sports and classes and extracurriculars and self-driven interests, that those things will beget, you know, the brightest possible future for you. I think that if you do it more intentionally as it relates to these two domains, that we can have like really outsized results. So that's, uh, that's, that's what I'm sort of driven to do is to find ways to bring that to every kid in the world. Right. One of the things I really enjoyed listening to you discuss is this idea that, you know, in the early days, you were dreaming up these auctions and dreaming up cost-benefit analysis and, and these games, but you were really doing it on spreadsheets, as, at least that's how I understand it. And then with a little bit of funding and some software engineers, you're actually able to develop real games. And just tell me a little bit about that process and that experience. Sure. So even earlier this year, the first game that I played with the synthesis kids I designed called Arctic. So each team had different ships, then you were navigating a, a melting Arctic as like new shipping routes are available. And all the teams had different objectives and they were trying to accomplish them. And, you know, all those movements were happening in Illustrator. So I had the Illustrator file pulled up, you had the different ships, all the different uh, spaces were labeled alphanumerically. And then we would go one team at a time as they would make the predetermined number of moves for that week. And then at the end of that experience that I would have them put together an Arctic report where they would really think about the different strategies, they would connect it to history. Uh, they would think about you know, what they should have done there. What were the kind of key and pivotal moments? Uh, how would they improve the game? Like what choices would they make anyway? So overall, like a really fantastic experience. But the thing that is crazy to me now is that because the game of Arctic is put in software and the game, it, 
Arctic will be a game, more like fish is probably what it will be, but those two games are very similar, is that this game will end up being played like hundreds of thousands, not millions of times. You know, we'll take up, you know, and that, that just blows my mind because I would at the outset design a game one time. I would play it in this really boutique way in a really like DIY, you know, moving pieces around and hoping that my computer could handle, you know, the different RAM that was taken up to so getting to a place where like, that game can be available in your browser and you can play it with a group of people right now. We could reflect on how it went and play the game all over again. I could condense eight weeks of a synthesis class into you know, one 80 minute session. And I just think that the, that power as an educator, right? I mean, of course I know like the power of software and all that, but to really like feel it in that way has totally changed my perspective about like the power that these sorts of things can have. There's a quote, I believe it's from Musk, and it's, you know, what is education? You're basically downloading data and algorithms into your brain. And it's actually amazingly bad in the conventional education because it shouldn't be like this huge chore. The more you gamify the process of learning, the better. For my kids, I don't have to encourage them to play video games. I have to pry them out of their pants. And so when, when you think about that quote, and if I reflect on what you just said, it sounds to me like what you're doing is condensing you know, eight weeks of trying to download data into an eight minute gameplay. Does that sound accurate to you? Like are the same learning outcomes being achieved? I don't really think of synthesis as gamifying learning. I guess I just think of it as an environment that is going to present the conditions that are gonna bring out the best and worst in you, especially at this age. Like I think that synthesis, that all adults would benefit from doing synthesis throughout their, their years, essentially. If I put, if the two of us and, and, you know, we're in a room with two other people from anywhere in the world and we were given this new complex experience and had to figure out how to solve it, we are also going through the same negotiation of who's taking the lead, what strategy we're going to pursue. You're making assumptions, you're, you know, building like a kind of a, a lot, you know, branching sort of the logic of what should be done. I think that we all would benefit from this, but it just, you know, some of it's the arrogance of adulthood is that we, you know, we think that kids need these experiences because it'll help them be like more effective adults, but really humans need this because we need to be better collaborators and problem solvers. So I don't think of it as like gamified, like I'm not trying to say, well, traditionally bi biology is learned in this way. So let's create a game that teaches you biology better through a game. I think there's plenty of people that do that. That's not what I do. Uh, my only goals are to create an experience that will force you to solve a problem or solve a set of problems uh, and to have to do it with other people and to have to size up the conditions that are at play in that environment, both in, in a fast way and a slow way. So one of the disadvantages of the example of Arctic from going from eight weeks to eight minutes or 80 minutes, whatever that may be, is that you do need the fast and the slow and you do need the cooperative and the competitive in my experience. So you need to be careful not to sacrifice the expediency of like, I can just reset this game over and over again, because then the games will have less meaning. One of the great things about an Arctic eight week session is like all of it really matters. You spend the whole week thinking about what your team is going to do for that one hour, because you don't want to make a mistake. And you've thought through all the different possible outcomes. So uh, in design, uh, as it relates to synthesis, it's very imperative that you have the moments to slow things down to really think about what choices make the most sense in that particular way. So in the example of like the art auctions, you're assembling this collection of art that you're taking to different cities at different sizes of markets. And what you're trying to do is to generate the most profit attendance, you're trying to find the most harmony between the different works of art, and then ultimately you curate the works of art. And you're doing this in competition with other teams. So we can play this game in a really fast way where the auctions just sort of fly through. But the challenge, of course, is like you haven't really thought through all of the, you know, all the second and third order thinking that I think is like the really important skill. And it's really easy because you get used to the speed. And I think especially kids who like use a lot of, you know, games that like things move really quickly, right? Like the amount of, uh, you know, seconds that kids watch YouTube videos or whatever, like it's just like their minds move very, very quickly. So sometimes like the harder thing is actually to slow it down, even as you're tempted to do it more quickly. So to get back to the Elon's quote about gamification, about, you know, video games and prying them out of his kids' hands, the goal with synthesis is to design something that is like nutritional, that like feeds your mind, that is challenging in that way that's really enlivening, um, but is also like welcoming and not so much that we're just proposing, like I hate rules in games, like who wants to listen to 15 pages of rules before you can get started? I would, I love the idea that you can get started, you can pretty quickly um, size up the landscape and then start making decisions. 
but then have that reflective piece at the end to really evaluate the efficacy of the choices that you made. So that, that's generally how I think of it. And when you, when you only have the goals of problem solving and collaboration, that those are the things that are most important. You don't get sidetracked by trying to create a game that can teach you computer science, or this game is going to teach you biology, or this, this game is going to teach you nucleic acids, whatever that may be. I really just want an engaging experience that allows you to join in. And then what happens once you join in is the thing that's most valuable. And we're going to help you make sense of what happened when you were driven to try to do something, dealing with the complexity of doing it with others, as other people were doing it that you were competing with or cooperating with. Um, that to me is uh, maybe the difference between synthesis and other educational experiences that are more like in this gamified mold. So, and when, when you're talking about, you know, that secondary and tertiary, uh, tertiary kind of thinking, are you, are you talking about the positive and negative unintended consequences or externalities that people may not be considering? A absolutely that. Okay. Absolutely that. Yep. And I think that's why in a game like fish, each of the different fish has its own conservation status. So they start at least concerned. And then if you fish the quota, then it goes to threatened and then it goes to you know, uh, near endangered and then it's maybe critically endangered and then it's extinct in the wild. And of course, as the fish downgrades in terms of conservation status, you'll see fewer of those fish on the board, but you might be incentivized uh, in terms of revenue to catch as many of these fish as possible. So it's building those conditions. So even if you, know, you play this game and four of the teams uh, you know, lead all these fish to extinction. The ability to like then talk about those choices and like the, how it felt to be motivated in these different ways. You're motivated not to have the fish go extinct, but unless that was a sufficient penalty, you felt like you know catching as many fish as possible is the thing that you needed to do. And then just calling that out and like really talking about then talking about how the game could be designed in a different way, where you would feel the pain of overfishing in like a more serious way, whether that's a penalty or you know it slows down your ship or or whatever else, or you're just a pariah as it relates to other teams. You know, there's all kinds of things that you can mess around with in that in that sense. But just the conversation itself is invaluable, and the games are just an excuse to have really good conversations. You know, one 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 of the reasons we actually started this podcast is because we were thinking about how many companies and how many people exist that are essentially just celebrating this idea of massive growth, you know, celebrating big tech companies that grow rapidly without thinking about the negative behavioral changes of their technology. And really, we wanted to celebrate people who are creating long-term sustainable impact. And I love what you are saying. And I wish that you, uh, you know, were informing and inspiring kids with, with these thoughts and understandings 20 years ago. And if that was the case, we probably wouldn't need to have a podcast like this. I just, I appreciate that, first of all. And I think it's so important to put students in an executive role, regardless of where they are, regardless of where they live. Like every student should be in that position as the judge or as the executive or as the person of power to make a decision. And I think it's very important that schools and educational experiences allow students to feel very powerful and to support them when they exercise that power in predictable ways, as in the ways that we see power play out in our world, that we have that moment of like deep reflection in the conversation about what those consequences, right? Those secondary and tertiary consequences of those choices might be. And to acknowledge the tension that exists. I remember in fourth grade, <laughs> This is funny to even say. Fourth grade, we were just, you know, our teacher was railing against the destruction of the rainforest and, you know, citing these horrible statistics around the acreage that was destroyed every day. And it's just in horror right? as a fourth grader. Oh my gosh, this is the worst. Now, of course, like this project, this unit culminated in us building a rainforest out of, you know, paper in our classroom, which of course there was no recognition that maybe some of these things were oppositional forces. But I think it's just to not acknowledge the motivation or the thinking behind the choices that are being made to destroy the rainforest, wherever that may be, you know, like to just start to recognize the complexity and to start to different, like understand the different motivations. And even as you fully disagree with the choices that are being made and the outcomes, both intended and unintended, it seems as though at a very early age, kids actually recognize this sort of stuff, but we are so loath to sort of like bring that complexity to them. We'd rather just sort of do set up these like teachable moments. So, so much of like persuasive writing 
is like school uniforms or no school uniforms, you know, or it'll be um, moral teaching where it'll just kind of ask you like, what should the student do in this situation? They found like someone's lunch money on the floor. Like, should they take it or should they turn it in? And it's like these leading questions where like everyone knows the obvious answer. And it's like, well, okay, we'll, we'll turn it in because of course we'll do that, but really I would keep it or whatever, right? So I think conundrums were my way because at the end of the day, like, as you said, like in terms of like the generations, like how are you going to really, if you had like brilliant ideas in education and you wanted to share those, you have to find a way to make those experiences live in classrooms and you need to find a way to do that. That's really hard to do. Like if I had the best ideas and I went from district to district and pleaded, you know, with district leaders to bring these ideas or this thing in the classrooms, it just wouldn't happen. Because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is that teachers well, first of all, even if it's approved at like the superintendent level, like by the time it finally gets filters down to teachers and schools, it would take forever. But what's interesting about something like Class Dojo is like they're already in 95% of K to six schools. They're already at like 50 million monthly users. And it's not because they went to the schools, they went to the educators themselves and said, basically, this is a platform that will enable you to connect with your parents, you know, more easily. So by partnering with a company like Class Dojo and designing something like Conundrums, I'm hoping that these conversations are now happening because from a teacher's perspective, you just need to show this video that poses like a provocative question. And as a student, all you need to do is actually to listen to the video if you like, and then express an opinion and even question the questioner or question like what other options might exist or write your own conundrum that's you know relevant to the world that you live in. But it's that structuring of questions where there's that ambiguity where we're not afraid of putting student in that executive position and sacrificing some of the detail, like I would not need to go through like a 45 minute, you know, recap of like the history of the rainforest and everything else, just pose the problem most simply, then we can always backtrack and build more context, but let's make choices first before we sit through, you know, a whole unit of, of background knowledge. So I guess a lot of it is just like this power dynamic that I see in schools. And for me, it's just returning power to the students because when they exercise power, it provides us opportunities to help support them in exercising power more ethically and efficaciously as they grow up. So rather than wait for them, well, you know, once you get out of college, then you could really have some control. It's like, let's give them that control now. Let's put them in the seat of the mayor or the governor or the CEO or whatever that is. And, you know, what do they think? You know, and if they think that chopping down the rainforest is like, is, you know, disastrous ethically and there makes no absolute sense, well, that's totally fine. But as a fourth grader, you should be able to recognize with some support what the other motivating factors are. And uh, I think that that's just really important to create a better world. So. So do you find yourself just constantly dreaming up these different games and, and learning experiences? Yeah. Well, because it's, I think what it, it's, it's just pattern recognition. I know like kind of what patterns at least over time, because, you know, when you, when you're working for Elon, I'm not an engineer. I'm certainly not a physicist. I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize. You know, I'm not, you know, Elon has one standard for people that he hires and it's that he expects them to be world-class and whatever benefit or luck, or just maybe just a moment of, in my like initial interview or, you know, original meetings, like some false confidence that I had put me in that position. So it was always had been for me, like fighting that imposter syndrome that you inevitably feel by just trying to be maniacally creative and generative, like, when I was teaching in fifth grade in my early years of Teach for America, I felt like I needed to like, have ownership over the things I was asking my students to do. And it's hard to get to feel ownership over worksheets that you're inevitably just kind of giving every day in service of this goal that is like doing well in the standardized test at the end of the year. And then sort of this longer out goal of like, if you do all of these things, then we promise that you will have options in life and you can decide what you want to do. And it felt to me like that was just a bad bargain and anything I could do in that moment to design or draw up an experience that would be more engaging or enlivening or just strike you as different, which makes you go, oh, look, maybe I'll listen to this because this is not yet another fractions worksheet. Um, it started there. And then as I was at Astra, I just only continued where my unique value add was maybe just a different way of approaching problem solving. Um, and maybe part of it by not being hyper-technical was beneficial because I just, I, I like to find tension in problems and then try to bring that tension through a question and then provide space to really talk about, you know, what, what ought to be like the world as it maybe it ought to be. And I think there's, there's definitely a place for like the world as it is. And I, I think as students get older, like that's a, of course a really important piece, 
but I don't think as a middle school student, I'm gonna spend a bunch of time describing bureaucracy to students or you know, telling them about, you know, like the, this is the process you go through to file your taxes or something like that. I wanna put you in the position of the, as the decision maker. I want you to feel what that's like to make that decision and to feel the tension of like all these different pulls. And, um, but yeah, no, all the time, just trying to think of like different, different areas where tension exists, thinking of different conundrums that could be written, thinking of different games that could be, that could be designed. And a lot of it's like the limitation of my own imagination, but I have been fortunate to work with really brilliant people who can take some of the basic ideas and, and bring about really cool things. Now, when you were, when you were working at Teach for America, um, you, you were exposed to inner city schools. And I can only imagine you saw, you know, immense wealth disparity. And you saw, you've had the opportunity to see students who are from ultra wealthy families and students in, in the inner city. And one of the things you spoke about earlier was how eventually you want to scale synthesis to, to reach the masses, ideally uh, a free model. And I'm wondering how your experience with Teach for America and what you saw in those schools is informing some of your thinking behind kind of the scaling of synthesis. I was shocked when I went to that school for highly gifted kids on Mulholland Drive in Bel Air. For, I was shocked at just like the beauty of the campus and the, the resources and the facilities and all of that. But I was also blown away by the lack of imagination in what students are being asked to do. So when I started, when I taught in Teacher America, so I, you know, I went to public schools my whole life, but I was fortunate to go to like suburban public schools that were, you know, considered to be good. Not that they were particularly innovative, but like good schools my whole life. Um, but I'd never been to a private school. So to go to a school um, like the school at Merman uh, and to teach there, I was just expecting to be surrounded by this, this world-class mentality, like world-class faculty, big ideas. Because in my mind, as, you know, thinking back to my time in, in Las Vegas, well, how could it not be that way? You have every advantage. You're selecting the students. You know, they're not only that, but at Merman, you had to take an IQ test, which of course I totally disagree with, but that was, that was part of their admissions process. And so you select the students, you get to hire, you know, faculty to get to teach in like basically a country club environment. And you're located in one of like the wealthiest cities uh, in the world in one of the most, in the wealthiest neighborhoods in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. So how could this not be world-class or how could this not be you know, I, I was, of course, so humbled to get that, that opportunity and still feel humbled to have had that opportunity. But when I looked around and realized that what students were being asked to do was largely the same as the same things I was asking my students to do in Las Vegas. And I saw, you know, yeah, there are some really, really sharp kids that would, you know, whether they're gifted or not, doesn't matter, just really insightful kids at, at Merman. But there were also just remarkable kids, of course, that I taught in Vegas who had nothing like the opportunities or experiences or exposure to the types of things that the Merman kids had. And just to, I think in general, what I think just needs to be more clearly said is that private schools, I'm talking like private day schools in cities like LA and, and San Francisco and New York and others, that these schools serve the affluent exclusively. Like exclusively said, okay, that's maybe the right word. Primarily, borderly on exclusively. And when you have private schools where 75, 80% or more are families that can afford to pay 30 to 40 to $50,000 a year per child after taxes, that if that is the vast majority of your student body, that I am not sure that you can justify the good, like the larger public good that these schools are serving and as nonprofit organizations, that seems to be like a very big conflict to me. So I think just in general, like what, what Teach for America, like what that experience, like what I kind of take with me is that there are remarkable students everywhere who absolutely deserve an exceptional education, that there are a remarkable amount of challenges that public school educators are dealing with day in and day out, the private school educators are just generally not dealing with at all. And that the model of private school education is so deeply flawed and creates so many just enduring inequities that it just needs to be totally changed. And in my mind, like the only justification for Ad Astra or Astra Nova now existing is if by having a, first of all, by having like a sliding tuition, uh, you know, sliding scale tuition model, ideally getting a place where we're totally need blind where a student applies and we have no idea about their financial background and we accept the students that we think are best capable of taking advantage of the opportunities we can provide. 
but that only if Astronova is able to scale experiences or insights that we glean from our privileged position, ought we to exist? Because otherwise, I don't know. I don't know what the purpose is. If the purpose of a, of a private school is to have be freed from some of the restrictions and conventions of the public system, fine. But then the question is, well, what are you giving back to be able to make better experiences for all students across the board? And for me, so often that was just not the case at the country clubs that are masquerading as schools. And I think that's just very important that Astronova not be that. So the move to be a fully online school at some level is to acknowledge that there are more students that we can serve. It's to expand the, the you know, geographies of students that we serve. But at the end of the day, like there's still many students who cannot get on the internet and we're not gonna have be accessible to Astronova because they can't have, they can't stay home all day or there's a thousand different reasons. But I think for Astronova, it's that we cannot serve every student. The goal is not to make a bunch of Astronovas all around the world, but it's to find the things that are actually special and help find ways to bring those into the purview of more kids. Um, and if these things are not good enough and these ideas are not great, then they will die a natural death. I hope that no one does something like conundrums or joint synthesis because you know they believe that you know this is the right answer. It's just it's the best that I've been able to do, and I humbly sort of share that and hope that somewhere like that can make make a difference. And maybe it's just thinking about how you ask questions to students in a little bit different of a way, or giving coverage to teachers who want to do more experiment you know experimental experiential stuff, or want to like play complex games in classrooms and need a way to justify that to the principal. If Astronova can serve as that excuse or that shining star is not fair, but like if they, if someone holds it up as a shining star, it's like, look, Elon sent his kids to this school uh, in an Ad Astra and this is the kind of stuff that they do. If that justification can beget a better learning experience for a student, then I'm happy to leverage whatever platform or opportunity that I can to make that happen. But so much of the challenge in education is showing what those experiences are like. There's so much the bemoaning of the system's broken and it's the assembly model and it's like, it's never changed. It's the whatever we know, everyone knows we've talked about it's challenging. Like the, it's, there are many, many things that make it challenging, make it the case that is, but let's share experiences that are going to be more enlivening for students. And let's find ways to bring them to as many kids as possible because there are teachers doing brilliant things all the time and they're not being heard from. Um, I really think that we could have a trillion dollars in our educational system tomorrow and the material benefits, we would see the material benefits of like better facilities for students, which are absolutely needed, but I'm afraid that we wouldn't see material improvements in the experiences the students are having in school. And that to me is the, the essential thing that needs to be improved. It's like, let's show what's possible. It's happening every day in schools around the world, but there's just no platform for many teachers to share the remarkable work they're doing. I've just been incredibly fortunate to have a platform to share the work that I'm doing in some ways, like as, you know, unremarkable as it is. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that because I think it's really easy to, to just think that, I, you know, that just it's Elon and then he hired this brilliant educator and they share this brilliant work. It's just, it's humbly what I've been able to create and I hope that people can take it and do better things with it. And I think, I think the way you talk about it can inspire, you know, a lot of educators to, to continue to develop and innovate and possibly share some of their ideas with you if you're ever open to receiving them. Absolutely, yeah, astronova.org. You can submit an inquiry and happy to, to share any ideas or, or to, to meet or, to, I mean, really ideally to create a platform where great ideas can be shared and find ways to you know share them at scale. Sometimes it's just, sometimes just the teacher just needs a different way of thinking about what the purpose of this all is. And Elon's sort of first principles approach I think it's just really effective when it comes to education. Like, what is the purpose of this all? Is it to, what, what, is, what is the purpose of it all? And what does it lead to? And what evidence do we have that it's going to lead to, you know, an, an efficacious and joyous life? And does all of it matter? Does, is every piece of the curriculum essential? Or have we just sort of convinced ourselves that this, well, we don't really know, but we think that these compilation of these, like these learnings or these goals are gonna lead to, to positive outcomes. And I think there's just a lot of guesswork and all I'm sort of calling out is I'd rather replace some of the guesswork, some of the stuff that seems irrelevant or seems just to be dated at this point with things that I know are immediate and are based in action and excitement and put a student in the center of it because that's where you're really gonna get the engagement. Like what happens when students love school? And if really the, the ultimate goal is a love of learning to want to know more to be able to exercise the things that you come to understand and to engage with others. 
that I believe that the choices that we make in terms of the experiences and environments we design should reflect those goals that I think most sensible people agree on. I don't think anyone really wants to just go through like endless exercises to get a piece of paper that signifies that you've done all of that. But we feel so afraid of the alternative of like the unknowing of like, well, what's the future going to hold? I'd rather have my kid have a degree from UCLA or Harvard or Princeton or whatever than not. But I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that that begets the best society in the best world. So I will fight that at every, at every turn. But if, and, and is your goal and is your objective to over time build a full suite, a full school, or will it always be a supplementary resource? How do you think about it? Yeah, well, Astronova is a full school, but I think, I, I think that schools that are sort of like a school in a box, there are others that have done that. I don't think that that's my interest. It would be just fighting to find fighting to find experiences that have like a core, there's like a soul to them, giving it a name and finding ways to share that, that idea, that core idea with as many people as possible and supporting them and in, in using it and then supporting them and developing their own. Uh, and not only they as in teachers, but as students as well. You know, I write conundrums with students. I, you know, we design maps and synthesis with students. The students design them on their own. Students are remarkably capable now, and we insist upon giving them suboptimal experiences in this thing that we call school, and then bemoan the lack of engagement or whatever else. I, 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 uh, I, um, I think it's important to have um, to operate humbly, and uh, I don't believe that I can design a school model that will fit every kid. I just know that I can design some experiences that will resonate with many kids. And that's just what I focus my time on. Something that I find just really beautiful about your approach, and you see it time and time again when you speak, is you're so honest and so vulnerable about, you know, the, the difficulties that you're facing. And a lot of people really aren't. And I just want to say kudos for that. It's, it's really beautiful to see in here. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's like the only way that I can really, really like come to terms with the opportunity that I was given and the challenges that, you know, of like making good on that opportunity and just a sense of like the difficulty of like doing something that's really different and worthwhile. It is difficult. And education is just one of those fields where like everyone has an opinion and there are many people that, you know, purport to know like what should happen or what it should be like or how to change or that's broken. And there's just so much negativity um, and yet to have like a humble, like when you work with students every day, like it just, it's a humble endeavor. It's difficult to do like really difficult stuff. And there are a lot of forces that are pulling you towards more conventional choices. And to try to get out of that is like, yeah, it's really, it's really quite difficult. And also, you know, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. And I feel like maybe more so than anything else with people, because they feel like they've all had, we've all had educational experiences. We've all been part of schools we have a really strong opinion about like how this should be run and like, well, how it could be better, but to really bring that about is quite difficult as we've seen. So yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that because I, I do feel, I do feel vulnerable all the time. You do feel imposter syndrome all the time. And uh, I think that's healthy in the end of the day. Like there's no way to really like reconcile the opportunities that you've been given um, with sort of like the things that you're spending your time doing. If you like don't have some accounting for the kind of craziness of it all. That makes sense. And, and honestly, I think if you lose the imposter syndrome, one, you're not as motivated to keep learning and keep growing, right? If you lose the imposter syndrome, then you think you know it all, which is pretty dangerous. Yeah, nothing's more, yeah, nothing is more dangerous to sort of your, uh, to your state of well-being if you think that you have it figured out or you've seen it all or that it's so clear to you, you know, it, like how annoying would it be if I was like, well, it's so clear to me that all schools should adopt an Astronova or Ad Astra model. So clear to me, like, why don't they do that? Mm -hmm. I would hate to listen to someone like that, like someone like me say that, <laughs> like, you know, like, well, you know, let's talk about the advantages of school like Ad Astra, Astronova has, and then, you know, or, or advantages that any independent or any private school has. And uh, to try to tell people how things, you know, how things should be done. It's not, it's different to say like how things can be improved, but it's one thing to say like, you should adopt this model that has worked and it's very, 
like these very like limited conditions and these like almost ideal like lab-like conditions that this thing should be replicated everywhere and there should be no problem in doing that. But the way that we talk about scale, that's always the thought is like, oh, like let's just take the best ideas and then like scale them. But like that's, it's just not, it's not that simple. And Josh, knowing what you know now and having had you know this many years of experience, understanding how quickly you can dream up a game and bring it to fruition, you know, just reflecting on the last six years, what is your vision for education in the 21st century? Like, where do you think we can get in the next 50, 70 years? Out of desks. I hope we can get out of desks. Yeah, I hope we can get out of desks. I think that, that's maybe the simplest way I can say it. Um, yeah, I, I, I really believe that uh, internet access expanded to more people, better online learning opportunities. I think the pandemic will beget, I think really positive change with education overall, 50 to 70 years. I mean, I don't know when it comes to AI and all that other stuff, it's just so difficult to really know what would make sense to spend your time on. You know, if this is the end of the end of work or just the difference of work, I just think yeah, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I just hope that we continue to evolve our goals fundamentally with like in, in tune with who we've always been as a species or, you know, those kind of like aspirational, like the aspirational goals that we most want to be with sort of the, the technological realities that we're living in and not to lose sight of the things that we, we always like know like produce good outcomes, which is like a sense of belonging um, a sense of worth, the ability to feel like you can make a difference and like change your circumstances for the better, that all of those things are indispensable and continue to be so, and that we try as much as possible to, to make those things come to life in this simulation of the, of the world that we call school. And maybe it's just that we I don't know. I, I you know, I, I just, I, it's, it's, it seems like a, there's just a big divide between the conversations that are being had in some circles around school. And it's the worry about getting into Harvard or Stanford or, you know, all the anxiety and all the pressure and the kids are overscheduled. And then there's a totally different conversation that's happening where you know, you're, you're just trying to make sure that you're like your student, that your child has like a well-resourced school or like has just, they have like, you know, running water, like you know, there, there's just the divide in terms of the things that we're focusing on. But I think at whatever, you know, at that highest, at that highest, most privileged level, there is, we've like sacrificed like what is possible for the fear that if we don't do sort of like the most predictable path that getting off that path is going to, to, to you know, to really doom your child. And we're fearful, of course, of putting our kids in like a perilous position. And I think at that, you know, at, at a different level, the conversation is just, you're just hoping that you have like textbooks that are up to date or that you have like a qualified teacher to teach you or that you have like a class size that's like remote, remotely manageable or whatever else it is. But I think, I just, I, I, I can imagine a world in which like we, that like the, the choices that parents are making start to look like more similar. These aren't these like totally different, like totally different worlds, it feels like in some ways, but eventually we get to a place where every family anywhere has a choice of many different options. And a lot of them are really good. And it's just a matter of choosing those that are sort of best suited for what you're looking for as a family. And, uh, and as much as possible to involve your children in the choices of the things they want to pursue and, and want, you know, hope they give them value and meaning and all that. But yeah. I'm just really fearful of uh, of delaying of delaying entry into the world, and that school is this artificial thing that's it's just like it's this elaborate play that we're putting on, and it doesn't really lead anywhere, um, and it doesn't really uh, beget the type of, of empowerment that we hope it does. That that's my real fear, and so I hope in 50 to 70 years that we resolve that some way or the other. Man, you speak really beautifully about it, and your passion is so clear. So, thank you. It's it's really a pleasure to meet you. I so appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for listening to Impact in the Twenty First Century, and thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. 
We're so grateful for your sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or coworker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will allow us to invite more awesome guests to join for the positive impact conversation. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please subscribe, leave a review, comment, and let us know what you thought of today's episode, or if there's anyone else you'd like to see on the podcast. In the meantime, wishing you a wonderful, impactful day ahead, and be sure to join for the next episode.